Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Actually Do You Know What podcast. And uh, for this week's episode, we have our second guest on the show. We have uh, Ilya Merchev, so thank you very much for coming Thanks on for today. having me. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, no, uh, we just thought it would be like a perfect guest to have, really. Ilya has his own uh, <laughs> podcast, uh, the Movie Millennium podcast, so we thought it's it's nice to get to talk to someone who's kind of in the same space as yourself, you know, going through similar problems and overcoming the kind of obstacles. not emotional problems <laughs> yeah. <you> know. <laughs> yeah no just just the whole like in terms of setup and stuff like that and just talking to someone who's you know in the process of putting their things out there same as ourselves so um yeah, yeah no it, it's great for us to have you on because there's a certain amount of shit we can get by talking with until we have to talk to someone else who has their own opinion so um yeah uh, another thing as well was uh from looking at it first you wouldn't think we would line up as well but because uh, he's a, m- a movie podcast and we're more sort of like um shit talking podcast yeah but um you know if, if you if you've listened to the podcast i'd recommend it his one is very sort of psychology heavy not that it's you know uh yeah like it's taken that turn there yeah. from the first episode you recorded was very much a review bit like re- yeah. it was review content whereas now it's very much a more societal impact content. Like, what was it that kind of? Well, when I started it off, it was <clears throat> it was actually supposed to be a horror movie podcast. Um, like, very niche. Com- yeah, very niche. A bit too niche. And I was thinking to myself, well, you know, that's it's not going to draw everybody in. So then I was like, I'll keep it to like a movie podcast. And then when I was listening back over the first episode, I was thinking to myself, well, it's sort of like fifty percent talking about the movie and then fifty percent talking about psychology. So I was like, you know what, why don't I just like combine the two, make yeah. it more psychology yeah. and we'll get more of like um, a general audience coming in. Yeah. So that's what, that's sort of where it, where it happened, I guess. Yeah, like it, it is uh, more the case where like I'm really into movies myself, so I can appreciate you doing a heavy review, but I think it's probably more suited to everybody when you have it linked to society like, like you do. Mm-hmm. Like with certain episodes it's kind of hard for you to do that or like when you decided you were going doing Star Wars I was like I, I don't know what direction this man's it taking was, it was the first suggestion that came in and this was like more it was like it came in after the second episode I was letting everybody know okay I'm going to take a more psychological approach on this mm. and then the second uh, the first the first movie suggestion came in and your man was like oh I'd love to hear your take on Star Wars and he hadn't heard the second episode, so he thought I was still doing yeah. movie reviews. So I was like, well, I mean, I'll do it, but I mean, I don't know. And I was like, it took me a really long time to actually come up with a topic for that. But like eventually, you know, yeah, go and, give and it a listen. And it, worked, and it worked out well, to be fair. Like, Thank you. The one thing I would say with all your episodes is like they're that bit shorter than theirs. Like they're the half an hour. They're half, but, yeah. Half but it, it flows really well because mm. with that, you're not trying to fill up space either. Like, there's enough content. If you were cutting it any shorter as well, it'd be a case of packing too much shit into too little the, of time. The other, the other side of that is that it's like, it's hard for me to squeeze everything I want to get in into the half an hour. And there's lots of stuff that I'm sort of like leaving out. But I, I guess like I always tell people to, you know, if you have any questions or if you want to talk to me about something I may have missed or that I couldn't get into the episode, um, just to hit me up in the DMs. And a lot of people have done that. Mm. So that's handy. I suppose as well, though. Uh, if you look at it, there's two of us here. We do just over an hour. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one it's person half for half an hour. Oh, yeah. <laughs> half, yeah. To, half to battle. Yeah. yeah. Half to work um, Yeah, so I suppose... Uh, I think a brief sort of background on why you're so into psychology, I suppose, 
more so not like your life story but you know well, it all began the day I was born <laughs> uh, yeah yeah um that's fair enough um actually i didn't know what i was going to do in college up until around april in my leave in certain year and i was hell-bent on doing english in college because i was good at it mm. and i mentioned it to my uh, english teacher at the time we went to the same school so we probably have an idea but uh, i mentioned it to him and he was like you want to you want to do english yeah Right, okay. You won't get a job out of it. <laughs> so I was like, well, okay, well, what's the point in going to college if, you know, if it's not certain? And psychology isn't certain as well, but... Um, yeah, I was going to say, so you yeah. went for the second least likely second, one to get a job. Yeah, well, you know, I, I had uh, ideas for doing engineering and things like that. I did a lot of science subjects in school. Problem is, though, I wasn't that good at them. So <laughs> nobody, yeah, you know, nobody wants an engineer um, designing something who got like a H6 in there. <laughs> the, English would, the English would have been really well in all the manuscripts yeah. that you wrote for things. But. Yeah, I'd be able to read out the maths, but I wouldn't understand <laughs> them. But um, yeah, that's where I was. And um, I saw this program that was being done up in Maynooth University that wasn't an arts. It was a science degree. And it was one of the only, I think it was the only one in Ireland at the time. So I was seeing that and there was 20 places available. So I thought to myself, you know, I'll give it a go. Don't think I'm going to get in. Mm -hmm. But I got in and it's great. So Yeah, I feel like with um, with the way that the school curriculum is taught, especially for leave insert, it leaves a lot of people or it might push a lot of people away from the idea of doing like that, like doing psychology. Like there's no subject where you're like, oh, I enjoy this. I'm good at it. Do you know what my next step would be to do psychology? Yeah. And I think that's kind of an issue. Like with English, if you're good at English, then fair enough. But even still, there's such a push away from studying things like that. And I know ourselves, like so much of our content so far has revolved around ideas within psychology. Um, yeah, and, and it's just, it's a more interesting thing. And I, I think more power to you for going to do it, like despite the fact that, you know, it's not a certain thing. But like, there's a lot of options. It. I'll put it that yeah. way. There's a lot of options. Like, I know a lot of people could go into journalism, or like, uh, I know one or two people who are doing radio at the moment that did psychology. And you never know where you're going to end up afterwards, you know. But uh, it does involve a lot of work, a lot of study. You know, it's not a thing where you get your degree and then you head off like you're looking at yeah. six, seven years yeah. in college. So yeah, I have a, I have a cousin as well who's doing his PhD at the minute, and like that's the one thing that. Like, at those times when I thought of doing it myself, and they were like, you know, be ready for at least six if you want to do a master's, and then ten if you want your PhD, and yeah, I, I, it kind of turned me away from it, and maybe it shouldn't, but that's just the way it works out sometimes. What do you guys actually do? I, I actually don't know. I'm what doing engineering. Engineering, yeah, I had a feeling, because I, I know one of you mentioned engineering in a previous podcast. I was like, maybe yeah. one of you guys do it. That's when Luke decided to debunk 9-11 by becoming a civil <laughs> engineer for about 20 oh, right. minutes. Um, no, I'm only going to college this year now fingers crossed uh, to do physio so oh nice uh, yeah 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 it's weird because like neither it'd be great if uh, part of our courses really overlapped with they really don't do what they? we want to talk about for the podcast and and then the time is the issue you know yeah because yeah. like by the time we've done whatever work we have to do for it and then do research for episodes or you know look at study on ideas that we want to talk about it's yeah. just it's all fairly sim and as well it's an issue that we're going to different places so we'll have to get past that obstacle yeah when we when we come to it but um yeah we said uh, today we were talking to Ilya before the episode and we said like we were thinking what would we talk about for the podcast and obviously with Ilya being into psychology and us having an interest too it'd be best to you know um uh, 
have the content based on that. And in that, we kind of thought we'd talk about um, some of the more unethical experiments that have been done in the past. Yeah, great um, topic of discussion. It's a really good, like, Luke had been on about it very yeah. early days, and then he brought it up again to say that our next episode should be about that. And it was, just, it was funny that you had said the same thing. Yeah, actually... But the more you look into it, the crazier it is. Like The last episode we did was religion, or... Yeah. Something yeah, something was, on yeah. yeah. Well we but, did we, we we've recorded one but we haven't put it up yet. Yeah. But anyway, one of our uh, one of our more recent episodes was religion or whatever, whatever it was, but it was meant to be going through unethical experiments that we would conduct if morals weren't an issue. And I had a few ideas and whatever and then we just sort of benched it because we were like, maybe there's not. Yeah, between the two of us, we thought it might be tough to yeah. flesh out a full episode. Yeah, so... But, but I think it, it's found some consistency in terms of what we've put out in that we've gone through, you know, cults, the morality, and then onto religion, and then, like, those sort of topics, very, well, somewhat psychologically based in terms of how they're affecting the how they affect within the society. Yeah. And then we thought this would just be a decent uh, segue into this episode. And yeah as well to have a guest on it's, it's I will nice say there is, there's a bit of a difference though now between morality and ethics there's a bit of a bridge um, between yeah I suppose because um, like a lot of moral issues they just don't really translate well into psychology um, ethics would be more for like institutions so like you know doctors and nurses yeah. they deal with ethical issues um, whereas morality might be more of a, an individual type of thing because yeah, okay. what is moral you know you can argue about it all yeah day. yeah Okay, we're, we're not going to get into that right now. <laughs> <laughs> we know where where I stand on this. Uh, it looks like I'm outnumbered here, but uh, no, I know what you mean. Um, yeah, there is a distinction between like there's things that aren't ethical but might be moral, and vice versa. So there is a yeah. bit of a you know uh, bit of a difference there, but. Yeah, so maybe like the best way to segue into it might be to not segue at all and just jump straight into it. Jump I mean, into it, yeah. uh, is there any like one in particular that you think that people don't know about that they really um, should be aware that this happened? Well, I, I'll I'll say this right. Um, when you're talking about ethics, there's like four things you got to keep in mind, and that's who is this benefiting? Like, if you're doing a research study, is this going to benefit anybody? Is are you getting anything? worthwhile out of it um second thing would be are you harming anybody so if what you're studying is going to cause like death or mm -hmm. harm well then it's not ethical you can't do it another thing would be justice like uh if something goes wrong or you know is there like um is there a second platform for um something to go wrong uh you know what i mean yeah um and the last thing i guess would be like control does the person who's in the experiment do they know what's going on are they there willingly and can they leave mm -hmm. If they need to, and if all those four things are being done, you're, you're you've got an ethical study going on. Now you can't always have all four, or like a complete four set, yeah. but you can get pretty close. So yeah, well, isn't it the case that that was only like that's far it's, more recent a thing than new. people it's would new. like to think? Uh, because after the whole oh, like after the whole like Milgram, we talked about that in the Stanford thing. Then after after that, but yeah, go on. There was ethical codes back then. Um, just to let you know, but they've been way more heavily enforced now to the yeah. point where um, if you have an idea for a research study, no matter how educated you are or how like um, well-known you are in the field of psychology, you could be like the top dog with like two, three PhDs mm. and like a hundred publications. You still need to go up in front of an ethics committee 
and they need to pick apart your study like piece by piece to see if there's anything unethical going on here. And it could be something small. It could be like, oh, the information like isn't, uh, it's not data, prote- it's not password protected. Like this could get leaked. What yeah. if you get hacked? You got a mm-hmm. password protected. It's got to be encrypted. Yeah, um, but is it the case that there's still people who circumvent that whole thing? I mean, like if you look at things like maybe not a in purely psychological um, experiment, but like what the CIA did, for example. Well, now they were they they don't op- they, they operate they in operate black under zones. their own laws. What do they call them? Black sites, black, dark zones, yeah. something like that. They don't yeah. operate, uh, and they often go overseas. So this is only for psychology. Okay, there, there are there have been a lot of stuff that the CIA, the CIA have used um, from psychology. We'll get into it, but like I think where it all started to go wrong uh, was Freud. Uh, Freud messed the whole thing up. It was it started off great. Psychology started off in a little university in Germany in like 18, 1850, 1847. And what they'd started doing was they like a bunch of like doctors and physicians and mathematicians got together and they're like, well, we're going to study stuff that has never been studied before. And what they started studying first was reaction times. So they got a bunch of people in to see how, like how fast could they press the button? Like a light flashes, how fast can you, you know, press yeah. the button? And they were so precise and like so, um, methodical with it that they managed to figure out the amount of time it takes for a nerve impulse to go to your brain and back down to your to the source like pretty accurately they weren't yeah. spot on obviously because well, they especially were especially for those times though. they didn't even have like proper funding they were using devices and machines that they made out of like brass doorknobs and like bits of scrap they had lying yeah, around. Yeah. but they were brilliant and um a couple of years later during the early 1900s freud comes along and People, he, he ruins the game. When people think of psychology, they think of Freud. And he was the, the worst psychologist I think we've ever had. He was a, a cokehead, for one. And he never, he never published anything that could be proven right or wrong. He was sort of like the person... He, his whole idea was everything is like uh, subconscious and everything's about yeah. sex. And like no matter what you do, you have these urges that can't be measured... And you have these like things within you that can't be studied or observed, yeah. but they're there. Uh, <laughs> just trust me. <laughs> and take cocaine. Cocaine cures everything. Would you say that's more like sort of bridging to like philosophy type? Well, not really, because um, he was making very bold statements like um, boys want to kill their fathers to get with their mothers yeah, yeah. and mothers want to daughters want to kill their mothers to get with their fathers and he was telling his clients these things one time uh this woman came to him because he was like very well off i think i know the is this the horse story oh maybe not so. <laughs> maybe not. oh shit there's more than enough <laughs> so this woman comes to him um because he's like the the upper class doctor if you have a problem you go to freud and if you're rich you go to freud so this woman walks in and uh, she's brought her little boy and she's like, he's terrified of horses. I don't know what, anytime he sees a horse, he like freaks out. And he's like, oh, well, you see, it's because of the horse is such a manly creature. And it's got like, it's very well endowed as an animal. He's obviously very insecure about that. You should get him more in touch with his father. Turns out the boy had like nearly been run over by a horse a few weeks ago. And he was traumatized as a result of it. But he was prescribing like crazy yeah. treatments like cocaine. And I think the you mentioned that you were probably on the same track as me is this the woman that he treated for yeah 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 you can go ahead i'll give you no i think you might know the details better than myself now i only like i did as much i did a bit of research recently but 
I tried to touch on a lot of things and I can't remember exact details about them, but it was something she had came in with what she thought was depression and other things. Yeah. And he thought it was just, it was pure hysteria. And he started giving her cocaine and stuff like this. Yeah. I, I can't remember. I'll see if I can get the, if you know more about it than I do. They, they called it hysteria back then. It was like a combination of anxiety and depression. And it was a woman's problem because um, <laughs> uterus is Latin for hysteria. So, and hysterectomy. And hysterectomy. Uterus, yeah. yeah, and to calm you down sort of a thing. Yeah, yeah. that's what it was supposed to do. But he, 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 again, just kept prescribing her cocaine. And I'm pretty sure he had her for a couple of months where he was just, like, dosing her up with cocaine and, like, telling her to do these, like, crazy actions and rituals that had no... And her nose got really badly damaged as I well. he had to cauterize her nose as yeah. well. Yeah, Sick. But th- that's what the standard was back then. And even his student, he had a student called Carol Young. Uh, who, Jordan Peterson uh, talking point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Carol Young was... Uh, a freak obsession fan of um of freud at first but then as carl Jung sort of got older and got more experienced he realized that this was a kind of a little bit of bullshit but they had another woman in um who was like severely uh hysteric quote unquote and uh he actually had an affair with her they made a movie out of it with uh, michael fassbender and kira knightley and there's a big like huge like intensely sexual relationship going on with them and obviously you can't do that like you know yeah. it's very unethical you can't do anything like that but uh, yeah and like I suppose it's hard to it's hard kind of for us to fathom the thinking behind psychology to go from that from what it started with to such unethical practices with Freud yeah. but I mean if everyone buys into the same belief that this guy is the high and mighty that they made him out to be then he was controversial. That was the thing because psychology wasn't really taken seriously. It wasn't very well known. Um, was it a case that in the psychology community he was people loved? hated him in the oh, psychology they community? Him, okay, yeah, they really disliked him, and um, it started to cause a huge stir over in the U.S. Because you know they're during the early 1900s were pretty. Um, they were a free country, but they were still pretty traditionalist. Yeah, you know, they yeah. had a lot of traditions and values, and. Um, Around the late 1930s, early 1940s, this guy comes out called um, Watson, John Watson. And he was like the second coming to psychology. He was like one of the most influential people. Mm. And he invented, well, not invented, but he brought this school of thought called behaviorism. And in my opinion, from everything I've looked at, behaviorism is where all these unethical experiments happen. Behaviorism is the idea, input, output. So you have a human... They take in experiences, sensations, and that influences their behavior. Pretty simple. Um, you do engineering. Do you code, coding or anything like that? Yeah, or, small. Uh, yeah. In, input. Yeah, output. yeah, yeah. Yeah, X to Y, all that sort of stuff. And to prove that he was right, he did a bunch of experiments. And one of them was called Little Albert. Yeah. Yeah, pretty, pretty dark. Do you guys want to? Yeah, so basically the experiment that you're on about is um, he had this, I think he was a nine-month-old baby. And he introduced him to loads of different stimulus and he had great reactions to it. And then he started introducing him to a white rat. Oh, yeah. And uh, every time that little Albert went to touch the white rat, he, he hit a metal bar behind him with a, with a hammer or something yeah. or with, a, with another bar. And it made this really, like, that's a very jarring, jarring sound to a, to a nine-month-old baby. Yeah. And it became the case that little Albert, every time that the rat came near him, that he'd start crying and he just... He grew a complete phobia to 
the side of the rat to the idea of touching the rat. And I'm pretty sure that carried on with him throughout his childhood. Or well, was, the whole there was some sense of trauma that carried through. The whole idea was Watson had this phrase. He was like the Doctor Phil of the 1940s, but like famous for science, not for like having yeah, psychos <laughs> on his TV show. But his whole thing was he had this saying: "He says, if you give me a child, I'll make that child into a doctor or a thief, something like that." He said he could do anything, like you know, at, from an early age, he could grow someone from a blank slate into whatever you wanted. Yeah, he thought that. people were completely malleable. Like. Yeah, so his whole idea was to take this nine-month-old, make it afraid of something, show that fear is learned, and then he had the idea of unlearning that fear in the child. He was going to later condition the child to not be afraid of the white rat. But it, it, it was a lot darker than what you said because uh, the child actually developed a fear of the colour white. He was afraid of beards, white beards, uh, he was afraid of white dresses. He was afraid of like a lot of things that are white. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, well, that's very unethical, first of all, because you're harming the child. You're giving the child a phobia. Who's benefiting from yeah, this? Just like, I'm just proving my point. Yeah, exactly. And like, it's not like the child can say, actually, you know what? I'd like to withdraw from the experiment. Yeah. Please and thank you. Which you're very allowed to do. If, if anybody wants to sign up online for some psychology um uh, projects or you know participate in research you can and if you do you can withdraw your information and data at any point in time and just jump out but as a baby you can't do that and the parents weren't doing anything either because like oh my my child is working with the famous john watson like you know it's a brilliant thing um but before they could get him to unlearn this fear john watson lost his job because um the university found out that he was having an affair with his lab assistant so they're like, ooh, no, we don't want to be associated with that this. seems a common, uh, common motif among these fellas. Yeah. Fair galore, you know. A superior so, corruption of power as well. Like, yeah, when exactly. you're dealing with someone that idolizes you to such an extent, yeah. you just feel like a superhero. Yeah. yeah, and they learn mind control in college as well. So. Oh, yeah, we do learn mind control. Yeah. <laughs> I mind control you to get me on this podcast. But, um, yeah, poor Albert. Like he was a he was a mystery for years. So nobody ever knew what happened to Albert. And everyone, when we were doing this in college, it was sort of implied that uh, Albert had a terrible uh, had terrible life, and he he you know he was uh, afraid of the color white, and it affected him. And there was a lot of work done, and they found out that you know little Albert died at the age of six due to malaria or something like that. So we we never knew yeah. like if if it affected his later life. But it was just super um, unethical. Yeah. And and another one of behaviorism's uh, crimes against humanity, I guess you could say. Yeah, like even this is a like almost completely, it's not totally different, but uh, like when we originally thought up this idea of speaking about like the most unethical experiments, like I don't know if you want to talk about the one that you had yeah. been on about. Yeah, so this, there's no way it's ethical whatsoever. Or I don't think really possible. Like yeah, no way possible. It's it's not my idea. Now I found it from somewhere. Is this a real no, experiment? It's not no, a real okay. experiment. it's an it's idea like a, form. It's like a hypothetical. But okay, it, yeah, like if you're thinking of the most unethical experiment that one person could think of. Okay, uh, this is like Nazi stuff. Not right. actually, but so it benefits nobody really. All you learn is like a little. At the end, all you do is like. What you know? Interesting. <laughs> Noted. Uh, but it goes that uh, you can do it from any sort of angle, like. But basically, you get two newborn babies or whatever number of newborn babies. 
We'll say six to make things interesting. We'll say six. Six yeah. newborn babies. Yeah. Okay. To two crowds, you know, three's a crowd, two. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, yeah, you just put them in a room with, like, nothing and just feed, uh, feed them or whatever and no external, <laughs> no external, like, contact from any other people. And if you look at it from, like, the, like, language development point of view, just leave them in there for like years and see what language they come up like do they have a language system or do they actually talk um and i started looking at it from the point of like there's this fella he's a linguist um but not really he's not famous he he's a youtuber as well tom scott and he's talking about this uh how different languages have different color sets so like let's say certain certain people that live in certain places will have way more colors for green than we do they'll make distinctions in different places so if you just throw babies if wait for anyone that thought that we had any sort of knowledge about anything psychological at all i hope that this completely throws that out the window but like if you if you threw like not throw but you know if you had a few babies in a room of like just like let's see yellow walls or something see like how many different shades of yellow and you know or how would they develop basically it's just so are really... they spending their whole lives in this yeah, yeah. well you know language is shaped by what you see around you yeah that's it yeah that's um, saying, if, yeah. if they're limited to a tiny little room with just each other chances um, are they're going to develop they probably won't develop language at all they'll probably just rely on like a few consonant sounds and and, yeah, because like when you think about it, children learn language from from adults yeah. and from other from other people, um, and without that that input, I don't think they'd. It would take generations. Yeah, yeah if you just if, for, if you just play like random clips of people speaking about nothing, yeah, put, yeah, play the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we get six new listeners. No, um. These babies are these babies are stunted in every way, but you you just played like. Albert Einstein or MIT lectures and they're you know like astrophysics and shit. <laughs> um, um, no is there any point like or any specific part of psychology that like tickles your interest in particular like what like I know it's early days obviously in your course yeah but um that you plan to move forward with um we haven't done it yet but I'm already looking at like business psychology and my knowledge of this is a lot less uh mm. a lot less broad. Yeah we don't have to linger on the th- topic I was only curious. Yeah, I'll probably be going into business psychology or something like that because if you're looking at things like like a huge problem in Ireland at the moment is that there's a massive shortage of child psychologists. Mm-hmm. So if you're under the age of 18 and you want to go see a psychologist, you have to pay or else be on like a, I think the, the waiting list is like 3 years see a psychologist and yeah. if you're 15 you're waiting three years for a psychologist 18 what well, you're, you're starting your life as an adult now mm-hmm. so that's for, but you know i think what's putting a lot of people off child psychology is like the horror stories that you're going to be dealing with you know yeah the broken homes and you know yeah kids with a lot of issues and as a psychologist you're just there to treat you're not there to change the circumstances um you know you're not you can't play god you can't swoop yeah. in and best you can do is probably just like phone an authority to swoop in and maybe take yeah. you know take care of the child but child psychology would you know that's just so depressing it, yeah it suits so like very hey, it few doesn't people. seem like something you can leave at work either yeah neuroscience is pretty good um one of my lecturers has gotten um funding i think over a million to do like a, a neuroscience project it's one of the highest um bits of funding that any academic has received in the country ever um 
thing about neuroscience is it's very um, magic, medicinal based. So you're looking at like parts of the brain that you can't even pronounce or spell. Like, yeah, um, yeah. Um, but I think for me, business psychology is where it's at. Um, there's very few courses like that in Ireland. I know one has opened up in NUIG for consumer psychology. So looking at why people buy things and how to influence people to buy things and different things like that. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that, that would probably be a bit more my end. I, I want a, a job that I wake up to and look forward to. And, yeah, you know. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, if we could wake up to and look forward to doing this podcast as our main job, or if you could do it for yourself, I think we'd both be yeah. pretty happy as well. Yeah. Um, but with the business side of psychology, that's more, it like, it splits off into consumer psychology and... It's not. You could go into dealing with people who, you know, the psychology. I know. I know there's. Yeah, I know there's a few businesses like these Fortune 500 companies over in like California, and I I know Google has them. They have like uh, company therapists, Mm -hmm. so sort of like guidance counselor in in like the workplace. But you'd still need to have like a PhD in clinical psychology, so you'd have to have a long, um, uh, a lot of years in, in that sort of a field. But for business psychology, you could work in advertising. You can work. Advertising would be a big one. Companies are always looking for ways to manipulate people to yeah. buy stuff. Um, I know one of the the more influential psychology tidbits, I guess, that would have um, influenced the, the world of advertising. So if you have, say, you go to the cinema, um, it would be great to go to the cinema actually nowadays. But <laughs> sick of staying at home. But if you've got like two options of popcorn. You got large and you got small. If the large is 10 euro and the small is like 2 euro, chances are you're always going to go with the small because like 10 euro for a large box of popcorn is a bit much. But if you introduce a middle option, which is like the medium size, 6 euro, it's sort of in between. It's not as cheap as the small size. Um, There's more popcorn, but it's not as expensive as the large popcorn. The small and the large probably aren't going to sell, but the medium always will. And that's where companies can actually start like manipulating their prices and start, um, you know, uh, adjusting for like their profits or yeah, like, stuff like that. What like what is there that's more profitable to a company than someone who knows what exactly needs to be done to sell? Any something? publicity is good publicity. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or like with that whole popcorn thing, you like the the thing I thought you were gonna say was like you put in the medium option, but you make it really just not good value <laughs> so like no but like it's, it's a thing they do if you ever actually go to cinema you see like the you know the popcorn the medium one will be like half the size of the large but it'll, like it might be nine euro or the large is ten euro or something mm. so you're like why wouldn't i get the large and you've just spent ten euro where you might have just spent two so it's like it's like a false economy where you think oh, i'm f- i'm fooling them here i've got better value but they all they never want to sell the medium well in this case obviously in that case yeah but you know that's another way of thinking about it yeah um i don't know exactly how we're going to go back to scaring babies from <laughs> talking about popcorn but <laughs> we're going to try our best so i i mean we can stick with behaviorism because that's where it's all at that's where mm. all the juicy stuff is at um, yeah like do you what was kind of the follow-on or like from from watson yeah like is it a case that it was it gets worse a continuum of yeah. getting worse yeah it wasn't so, just certain events somebody who was even more famous than john watson um 
Nobody thought it could be done, but somebody who was more popular than John Watson. Well, see, John Watson was getting divorced after that whole fiasco with the, with the affair, so he, he sort of faded out of the limelight and lost all of his credibility. So one of his students, a guy called B.F. Skinner, comes along, and he reads about Ivan Pavlov. And Pavlov has uh, his dogs. Yeah, conditioning. You ring a bell, and you give dog, uh, a dog a food. And <laughs> you give uh, dogs their meals or whatever, and then whenever you ring the bell, they're always going to start drooling because they mm-hmm. associate... The, the food with the bell he was thinking well that could probably extend into loads of different ways and um, he, he invented these things called Skinner boxes which were just a small little sort of like a cage almost full of levers, buttons and pulleys and you'd stick an animal in there and the animal is just left in there for a couple of hours and they're sort of like figuring how to get out so eventually they're going to start pulling at like the buttons or the levers and the pulley and one of these options is going to drop a little food pellet through the roof and they'll eat it. So they'll think, ah, if I keep doing this, I'm going to get more food. But then every day, the, the, the order of what they should do mm-hmm. changes. And it got so sophisticated where he was able to train pigeons to like spin around in a circle, hop on one leg, and then like peck the ground three times to get a piece of food, right? Um, that sounds pretty normal. And like, you know, a lot worse things are done to animals nowadays that are passed by ethics committees. Mm-hmm. Um, but where it gets kind of disturbing is that after a couple of years, this guy called Martin Seligman, fuck Martin Seligman, he, I'm saying it he wants to clip this from the podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is, I'm starting to When he dies, <laughs> put that on his gravestone. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he gets like, okay, so animals can learn how to like fend for themselves and like, you know, survive in boxes and cages. He came up with this really disturbing idea called learned helplessness. Can you train someone to feel helpless? where they, they, they let whatever bad things can happen to them, happen to them. So he gets these dogs and he puts them in a Skinner box, more or less. And the Skinner box is divided in half by like a little gap. And um, the dog can hop from one side to the other. So he puts the dog in the first part, the first half, where the floor is electrified. So the dog gets a shock. <laughs> Luke is like cringing <laughs> over here. But the, the dog gets a shock. And hops to the other side mm. and where there's like food and everything. Um, and they repeat that over the course of a few days. Gets to the point where the dog doesn't even go to that first half of the cage anymore. It just learns to stay on the other side, keep away from this side. It's bad. Day 10, thereabouts, he electrifies both sides. I was just about to say. Yeah, he electrifies both sides. And at first the dog tries like jumping between one or the other. This continues for like a really long time until the dog just like sits and just accepts that it's going to get electrocuted. Day 11, he brings the dog in, has the same story as it was before. One half is electrified, the other half isn't. The dog sits on the electrified part, doesn't move. Even though it could go to another side and be Mm -hmm. safe from the electrocutions, it just stays there and takes it because it's learned to be helpless. It doesn't see a way out. There's no hope. Um... Have you guys heard of Guantanamo Bay, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Martin Seligman has a very nice career after that shocking amount of uh, ethical Any violations. Yeah. And uh, Al-Qaeda had just sent the, uh, the planes through the Twin Towers, Mr. Civil Engineer. Or so they or say. Did they? <laughs> um, and the world is, like, super confused over this. And Martin Seligman is, like, you know, doing his own thing, doing research and whatever. He gets approached by these two guys called Bruce Jessen and Elmer Mitchell. And there's two lads here now from the Air Force. And uh, you know how in, in, in some militaries, I know they have it in Ireland. If you join the military, they'll pay for your degree. 
Oh, yeah. And then you serve a couple of years yeah. with them. Well, these guys were in the Air Force anyway, and they were psychologists. And they came along to Martin Seligman. They were like, we loved your work on learned helplessness. That's we just loved it. What about learned hopelessness? And Martin Seligman was like, uh, well, I don't know what you're on about, but I'll give you all the stuff that I, you know. Talk- <laughs> I'll give you all the stuff I talked about. Um, and they're really listening. And they go to the CIA. And they're like, lads, we have a whole new list of techniques to train our prisoners that we detain that are terrorists. We're going to train them to feel hopeless so that they see no end um, to the pain they're experiencing. We're just going to psychologically bring them down. And don't worry, it's not violating any human rights laws. (laughs) Which technically, it it didn't at the time. I don't think any of the original techniques really violated any sort of like um, conventions that they had at the time. Um, these two psychologists were the ones who invented waterboarding torture um, stress positions Mm -hmm. um, sleep deprivation was like a huge tool that they used and they're still operating today I know was it I think Elmer Mitchell is currently uh, living in like a giant compound that's been paid for by the government I think they got 90 million to do their research or whatever but like that all came from John Watson saying that, oh, you can condition people to be a certain way and to train them to be a certain way. And a lot of the detainees that they had genuinely fell into a, like a pit of hopelessness where they, you know, couldn't, um, couldn't see an end. And a lot of them like gave up a lot of information. Yeah. It seemed, it seemed like from the start, what was it? Behaviorism, it was called Mm. that like, that was just doomed to be a disaster anyways, because it's, it's people thinking like, Oh, I wonder would someone do this really terrible thing? How am I going to find out? I'm going to do an experiment to to prove it. And like, look, it could be used in both ways, but it is open to being used for the negative, which it obviously was. Like, even there's a, you know the monster study. Yeah. <laughs> for those of you that don't, it, it was just the guy who performed it. I think had a stutter when he was a child himself, so he wanted to show that like that could be uh, instilled in people. I think. And he took 22 kids and he led 11 of them for six months to live normal lives um, and just went through school and everything fine. And he took the other 11 and like really abused them for six months and, you know, mocked it every time. Or like, I think only half of them actually had speech impediments at the time. Yeah, they were mixed up randomly. So like a few kids yeah. in the group that was like given positive, like reinforcement mm. um, had stutters and some were in the... Uh, in the other group that uh, yeah, and, the negative uh, and I, I think like did the one the ones that didn't have it, I think, developed stutters. No, um, well, it depends. Um, what they actually found was that no matter what group you were in, if you had a speech impediment, uh, it wasn't affected by whatever treatment. So if you were encouraged mm-hmm. and you were told to like be more confident and you were reassured, your stutter really didn't go away, but you just had a lot more self esteem. Yeah. But the kids who had uh, a speech impediment. Um, effectively learned not to bother communicating because they felt they were going to be chastised or criticized or whatever, and they, yeah. you know, their self esteem plummeted. Yeah. But interestingly enough, that that study wasn't published originally because at the time it was being done, I think the Nuremberg trials were happening, and a lot of what the Nazi doctors were doing came to light, and it was in the papers and everything. So these guys were looking. Like, that looks pretty similar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these guys were like, "Oh, the, no, we we can't we can't associate. We can't be in the page after the Nazi doctors with our stuff going on." So they didn't publish it. But um, 
what's annoying is that like a lot of these guys they didn't get slack like they, they weren't held accountable for what they did simply because there was no legality at the time surrounding these types of experiments that took like decades um to be instated and to, to come mm-hmm. in into force yeah, yeah was there something that like it wasn't a case that one really terrible experiment brought all of that to the forefront in that they decided there was laws to be written now that we better do it or did they just i think it was just a combination um over time and yeah, like human rights <laughs> scrolling through what has happened and they're yeah. just like uh, uh, the fact that it could have been less when it was yeah but it's like the u.s really took over psychology um more so than europe like all of the like the psychological like breakthroughs happened in the u.s all of the theorists most of the theorists came from the u.s um a lot of the unethical experiments happened in the u.s um even with i I think one thing that may have actually influenced a lot of people was probably the stanford prison experiment Mm -hmm. that definitely had a lot of yeah that's the one that like everyone knows yeah yeah yeah, so obviously it was a case that it was um really what was on everyone's mind at the time but um as well the like i think outside of just the purely like just the psychology psychological field what the CIA did, like in terms of MK Ultra or mm. what was it, Operation Midnight, something like using LSD I that one. to see how they could. I think MK Ultra was like the embodiment of loads of different experiments. Yeah, and like it, I think it came to light as well that that was used, um, that they had influence in like colleges and stuff like that to have psychologists carry out experiments that they wanted done, mm. but um. Yeah, it's it's just it's so funny because people, you know, a lot of people would think that places like the U.S. are kind of so clear cut from all of that, where in actual fact uh, it couldn't be further from the truth. Really, it's true. Is there any like outside of the ones that you've mentioned that like what's the standout one for you out of that? I think the funniest one. Well, okay, it was very unethical, but it was pretty funny. Um, the Milgram experiment the milgram yeah. shock experiment to me is hilarious it's, it's it's really funny it's a hilarious situation um i know it, it was damaging to the to the participants but like um will i go into it because there might be people listening who don't know what i'm on about do you want to explain yeah, it well, uh, yeah sure i'll explain so yeah. it's um essentially an experiment in which there's three roles there's the subject who plays the role of the teacher and then there's a paid actor who is just, or it could just be a pre-recorded thing, who is the student. And then there's a, a person in a, in a lab called the scientist, and they're in on the thing. And they basically, there's a series of questions that the teacher has to ask, and the student gets them wrong. And you have to give them increasingly more, you know, uh, painful doses or more powerful doses of voltage or whatever. And it's sort of trying to get them to a point where they know what's wrong and, you know, they would rather not do it, but the authority, the authority figure sort of pushes them on to do it. And I think the findings were that a lot of the vast majority is like 60 something percent, even though they had uh, reservations about doing it, they went up all the way to the, the top dose and the feedback they were getting, it's like, you know, they're in another room and you can hear the person like screaming and all that and it's increasing it more painful and then they just stop and then the fellow's like, keep pressing it, keep pressing it and 
you know. Mm. But this is the thing I'm sort of iffy on with the ethics side of things. Okay, that's probably not an ethical experiment in the slightest. But to carry out that experiment, let's say, it's essential that the subject doesn't know what the, the, the yeah. what it is. Can you do any experiments with that anymore? That oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is about that experiment is um, they all, I think it was 65% of people in that experiment killed the other person killed the uh the learner yeah. and they left they weren't ever told i think it was like six months after they read it they read about it that it was a hoax so they left the lab thinking i've just murdered someone i'm capable of murder um but obviously you can't tell them like oh we're going to actually deceive you here we're going to play a little prank on you it's going to be great you're going to love it in yeah, six yeah. months but you can't do that but um a lot of experiments you have to do that because there's um you know, like participant bias. Or... Like people will change their behavior if they know they're being watched. Yeah. So if you have a bunch of people in a room and you tell them all, we're going to be looking at like who fidgets the most. Nobody's going to fidget because yeah. nobody wants to be the guy who fidgets yeah, the yeah. most. Whereas if you tell them, oh, just have a, like a light conversation. We're going to be looking at like who talks the most, you know, something like that. Yeah. And then what you're supposed to do afterwards is you're supposed to debrief them. You're supposed to say, hang on now. What we were actually doing is looking for who fidgets the most. If you don't want your data to go through, you have full like you have the right to retract your data if you're not happy with it. Um, that's the ethical thing to do. Um, there's a limit to how much you can deceive people. The deception isn't supposed to cause harm. Yeah. You're not supposed to like make someone feel it's... they've murdered someone, or like you know you're not supposed to make them feel like they've done anything wrong or like harmed them in some way or like yeah. um, you know things like that. But there is you can deceive. Um, I know we did a study. Uh, last year where we would have done it but COVID happened what we were doing was we were going to get a bunch of participants to blow up a balloon to see like do anxious people have shorter balloon sizes oh, than people yeah. who take bigger risks and um, <clears throat> well we obviously wouldn't be able to tell people that because like oh we want to see if anxious people because everybody would try and blow up the balloon yeah. as much as they could but what we would have had to do afterwards like taking like the questionnaire and everything back we would have said actually we're we're going to measure this balloon size and compare it to like how anxious you've reported yourself being on the piece of paper. Um, but you can deceive, but it just can't harm anybody. And the person should have the right to take their information back. Yeah, who, I did. Oh, sorry, go on. Who decides what's like, what's harm? Like, as in, if someone afterwards is like, that made me feel uncomfortable, is that harm or is it just like, grow up? Like, sort of thing. <laughs> okay. you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. like, you know, like, even if someone's like just sitting in a room, like, there's um, this isn't a real experiment, it might be, but isn't a TV show where uh, in community, if you ever watched it, the experiment they were told to wait in a waiting room before the experiment started, mm. but the waiting room was the experiment, and they're trying to see how long people would wait because a, a close friend told them to do so. Yeah. So, like, you get someone to bring you in or whatever. Um, but, oh, fuck, what was I saying? Um, would that be ethical? Like, would, is that doing harm to people? Uh, yeah, yeah, but, like, oh, yeah, that's what I'm... Uh, would it be afterwards, if someone went, I feel uncomfortable that you're watching me when I was in the waiting room and I was sitting there, there doing nothing, I didn't know I was in the experiment, would you just be able to say to them... No. Tough. 
if they want to take their data back and like it, that's why it's so difficult being a researcher sometimes because like you put like first of all you start off with your with your question mm-hmm. like you know will, how long will people wait in a waiting room um you start off with that you go through so much effort to research every other thing that's been done on this you can't just make up a new thing science has to follow yeah. from science but, and then to get to the experiment point you've passed the ethics committee you've got you've pumped a lot of money into doing this you've gotten a lot of work trying to get people in and then for one of them to turn around and say actually i want to retract my data as yeah. a researcher it hurts but you've got to go yeah. with what they want yeah. but let's say like you know for when you're can put- you slip it in the small print <laughs> <laughs> so like put it at the bottom of the pile <laughs> yeah, just just- yeah so like Okay, the example of, you know, someone that's uncomfortable ever uh, in the experiment, let's say the waiting room one, like that obviously would have went through like an ethics thing and I don't think there'd be many objections. But, yeah, so the person's free to withdraw. But let's say in a thing where, like the Milgram experiment, where you're convincing people that they've killed someone, obviously they're free to like, you know, but would, that would never... It wouldn't pass today. Yeah, it so happen, how but... did they decide, like, what's the... Like, oh, you can deceive someone, but not so they murder someone. Where's the... Do they have a line, or is it just a case-by-case? It's just a case-by-case, but, like, as I said, it happened in the U.S., and what you've seen over the past couple of decades in the U.S., it's becoming suing city. Like, people sue like it's their second job in the U.S. Well, okay, I I shouldn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) It's like their first job. But um, legal action is a a big uh, kicker in the U.S., so... That obviously translates into the medicalist field as well, because you hear of doctors that are just doing their job. Yeah. Something goes wrong, they get sued for like you know malpractice and all that, and that has gotten into the um, the APA, the American Psychological Association. So they had to just out of necessity bring in all of these uh, clauses and ethics committees and ethics boards and ethical principles just to avoid getting sued, really. And also to, well, you can say, well, oh, no, it's a good thing they were doing the right thing, they were doing the the, yeah. the moral thing. It was a good thing that they did. It's money. I yeah. Mean, I believe it's money. Yeah, as well, it, it, it can be such a difficult thing because, like, for so many of these experiments, like, obviously not to the extent that some of them we've been talking about, but, like, a certain amount of stress has to be put on people, mm. like, or a certain amount of deception has to take place, and therefore, like, you're very open to people retracting their data and not wanting to be a part of it. And yeah. when the boards are there, like, obviously, okay, they're needed to an extent, but... It can be disheartening, I'd imagine, anyways. And what what's what people don't realize is psychology research. No matter what we've just talked about, that has been like the the top ninety, like the top one percent of experiments. Ninety nine percent of most experiments are dead boring, dead boring. Most of it is here's a form. Can you fill it out for me? Thanks. That's literally yeah. it. And you take the information that's on the form. That's that's what most of it is. Um, so you know, when when you're talking about this, like. People don't have to join in on the experiment in the first place. You're given a list when you join, like when you participate. Are you 18 or over? Are you participating voluntarily? Have you got any med- medical issues? Uh, is there anything that you want to know about? You can, and they even give you the phone numbers and email addresses of the researchers in case you want to ask them questions before or after the experiment. I remember when I was in first year, there was a final year student who was doing a research project that I at the time thought, whoa, how did they get cleared for that? Uh, they wanted to get college students to come in, jog on the spot, measure their heart rate, and then answer like maths questions. I was like, jog on the spot, heart rates? That's a dangerous thing. He's <laughs> like, how did they get cleared for that? 
Because, you know, obviously, you know, if somebody has a heart attack or like ethics committee might say, oh, well, now what if you have somebody in there now who has like a who's just come back from a triple bypass surgery? You know, you, you know, yeah. you'd have you to just put like that, that down to their own stupidity, though, to like, <laughs> no, but like, you know what you're getting yourself yeah, into. No, like, like if someone like drops dead and it turns out that they actually have, can you have to, could they be able to say, look, he sort of deserved it for being an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what I mean? Who's going to say that? Where are you going to put that in your report? <laughs> they sue you like in court. In the conclusion, it's like, it's like one fat for the dog. Well, you know, obviously you just got to be careful and th- there's always an exclusion criteria. So um, if, you're, if you're doing like a, a study on sleep, you might be excluded if you have things like narcolepsy or like sleep problems or like anxiety or like yeah. sleep anxiety is a thing. Like um, you might be excluded just on those on those things alone like you know is but, there is there any of like the past the past unethical like really clearly unethical experiments that you think like if ethics weren't an issue and if you didn't have your own sense of morality that would have been worthwhile ooh um because yeah i'm sitting here saying oh this was disgusting that this happened well in fairness a lot of them did lead to a lot of good um like behaviorism did lead to a lot of uh, information um i think neuroscience like unethical experiments in neuroscience are probably close to an exception but not fully an exception um there is a fella called patient hm um i can't remember his name because like in psychology we don't use names we use like id codes Mm. Uh, so i can't remember the real guy's name he was a fella who used to have like really bad epilepsy and he went to a neurosurgeon at the time and the neurosurgeon was like well we can fix this it's going to be really easy my research has told me that there's a part of your brain if we just take that out you'll be absolutely grand i think they called it a prefrontal lobotomy so it was around the front area of your head where they'd be taking a piece out a tiny piece um what what it did was your man woke up and then after five minutes, um, they found he couldn't form new memories. So, like, all he could remember was going into the surgery and everything before that. But after five minutes, his memory would reset and he'd have no idea where he was, uh, what was going on, anything yeah. that had happened. Like, you know, very unethical. But what was even worse was that this doctor actually carried out the experiment on a bunch of other epilepsy patients, like, a few more dozen times. And the same result happened that they so couldn't... They found out that- that they couldn't make yeah. new memories. And he's such a, a massive, um, he was a wealth of information. I know that's kind of harsh to like because he was a human being. And his, like, his wife and his family were like aging around him. And it got to a point where he couldn't recognize them because they were so old. You know, it was really cruel. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> what they did, I guess, find out was like they studied him for like decades. And there's been other people that they've studied for like close to 40 years. Um, that they've learned a lot about the brain and how the brain works and how memory works and all this sort of stuff. But, like, where is the ethics in, like, studying a person who forgets he's in an experiment after five minutes yeah, constantly exactly. for 40 years? You yeah. know what I mean? That very unethical. But it gave us a lot of information at the, about the brain. And the more we know about the brain, you know, the more... Yeah, it's like, with stuff like that, it can be far more worthwhile than, like, let's say, like what the nazis did where it was just they were experimenting for the sake of like finding Mm. out everything they could find out whether it be beneficial or not and it's kind of it's it's tough in that like obviously it's unethical that they took such little consideration but for some of them was it a case that they didn't know quite how traumatic the outcomes would be 
like for let's say like little Albert's case, like was it? I suppose it's negligence. Little Albert is sort of like the case where it's like the the what if question because like Watson was one hundred and ten percent confident that he could get Albert to leave that fear yeah. behind. Still very unethical. But you have to understand that at the time it was like the 1940s and they really didn't, or probably even earlier, was it 50, no, 50s, 40s, but they really didn't understand about like um, mental illness. Um, they were still coming to grips with shell shock and PTSD and depression and all these other things that they really had very little information about. Um, but behaviorism, I guess, it has a bad rap and there's still a few like diehard behaviorists around today yeah. that aren't doing bad things. But Yeah, I mean, um, if you can carry it out without like, totally breaking ethical codes then yeah fair yeah. play but i suppose with the most extreme extent of it it's difficult to do yeah and like what i have to like stress is that i i swear to god 99 percent of all like psychology research is just giving someone a form asking them to fill out the form honestly and then carrying on from there i think the the most like crazy experiment i've participated in um, one of my lecturers was doing it. It was like you had to find your way around a virtual maze, more or less, and see how fast you could do it. Craziest thing I've done so far in psychology. Yeah. Um, you know, bring back the glory days. Bring back the glory. It's boring. It's too boring. But uh, yeah, neuroscience is where it's all at. Neuroimaging, because that's like we still know very little about the brain, and that's where all the, the new exciting information is coming out of. And and is there stuff like? related to the more practical side of neuroscience that like i suppose to an extent it's behaviorism how do you mean like like with behaviorism is it more studying how affected you are by what's around you or how affected you are by your brain no what's around you oh it's behaviorism like after behaviorism there was like cognitive psychology which takes into account like your brain okay your like your attention your intelligence yeah your memory things like that behaviorism didn't really want to explain any of that because they couldn't behaviorism can't explain why there's differences like let's say you have a child and you give that child loads of books and like teach the child to value education and to value knowledge but they grow up and like you know, they have an IQ of like 70. Yeah. It's like behaviorism can't explain that. They're supposed to be smart. But then if you have somebody like, I don't know if you've seen the movie, uh, Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. It's like yeah. a, a lad who'd, who'd never really been educated before was like a math genius. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know. And a really tough man from Boston. A really, man. yeah, from Boston. Yeah, the, the pilot, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, behaviorism couldn't explain that. But um, I can't remember your question. I think it was about neuroscience and behaviorism. Uh, no, I, you kind of answered it in that because I was wondering uh, where, like, was there an overlap? Or I was wondering where, but obviously there's none. So it was, was there an overlap between the two? And I can, like, there, there kind of is because, like, um, in the early days of psychology, was he French? I think there was a guy, um, Paul Broca. He might have been French. He was European, I think. And he had this fellow come into him who could only say the word tan. Like tan, tan. If you ask him, how was your day today? He'd say tan. What time is it? Tan. My poet or... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like Groot or something. You know? like, you know, can only say one thing. Um, and they found like he had a part of his brain on the left side around, the, around his ear that had been severely damaged. And that was the site for speech um, production. So that had been damaged. So a lot of studies in neuroscience look at people who've had like really nasty head injuries that are observable and that produce like an extreme behavior like saying tan yeah. or forgetting all your memories or can't make new memories and things like yeah. that that's sort of like uh, we discussed it in i think episode two uh your man was a charles whitman yeah the the 
clock tower guy who like killed like 18 people and in his um in his suicide note he was like open up my head and see what's wrong because there's definitely something there and they found there's a massive tumor, a tumor on a certain yeah. part of his brain that controlled like impulse control or something yeah. like that so the only way we know, we find anything out about the brain is by looking at you know what's wrong with it you know if something breaks in the brain and it produces yeah. an extreme reaction that's how we know yeah, yeah, which is is sad because people have to get hit on the head for for yeah, and like, to come out. is it is it an easy bridge to gap in terms of going from like you're studying pure psychology to go to the neuropsychological or the neuroscience? There, oh, it is so so difficult. If you're doing something like um, child development, like the, the the early guys looking at like how children grow, like how they grow mentally had very little knowledge of the brain, almost zero knowledge of the brain and how it like developed and how it matured and what all the functions were. Um, and then to, to try and find the overlap, it's sort of like always playing catch up. Because yeah. if you have a theory that, oh, um, by the age of 15, uh, a child should be able to like think critically and understand that other people have other ideas that might be different to them and to be able to question the world around them. And then you look at parts of the brain, it's like, well, what parts are responsible for that and, and why and how? You know, it doesn't it doesn't fully work out so yeah. psychology a lot of the time is sort of like playing catch-up fighting against self and parrots like because yeah 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 and unlike let's say maths or like physics well okay we'll stick with maths because it's a bit easier maths has like theories that are definite and like you know yeah, num- yeah. numerical and and stuff like that and counting and arithmetic those things can't be broken nobody's ever going to come out and say well actually you know one plus two actually does equal to five nobody's ever going to come out and do that because there are things that are definite mm. But there isn't that in psychology. There's yeah. so many theories that are conflicting in some ways. But So uh, keeping that in mind, to what extent should you take theories as being cemented? Take like, it with a grain of salt. Um, like there's no, is there any, maybe like, is there an example? But if not, like what I, would it take for you to be like, you know, this is this is it. Anything like objectively decays, like oh well, objectively, there's no such thing as an objective test yeah. in psychology. The one I mentioned earlier, the balloon test, with like seeing if like anxious people have smaller balloon sizes than, than people who aren't. That didn't turn out to be true at all. But the fellow who came up with it was like, no, this is definitely true, and he he made like a, a nine hundred page book with a bunch of these tests that were supposed to measure... He must have seemed like a fool. <laughs> yeah, I don't think any of his, his things really came true. I don't think so. I might be wrong. That's 900 pages. <laughs> yeah, <so. laughs> but that, that's the thing. That's the thing, you know, about research. Like, the sad thing is, is that um, you, you might do an experiment and you might do everything right. Mm-hmm. Your methodology might be right. Your statistics might be completely correct and you still get a negative result and you might not know why or how. And the journal that like you're supposed to be getting published by will say, well, you got a negative result. It's not exciting enough for our readers. Yeah, yeah. We won't publish that. But what if that's like super important? Yeah. What if something somewhere, what if like the participant um, in question or the participants or there was something small that somehow like broke this rule within the theory gets overlooked mm-hmm. simply because the journal was like, well, you know, it's not exciting enough. Like, you know, who's going to buy this? Yeah. Maybe you're looking at the wrong like variables. Like you could have, yeah. If you focus on something else, you could have just fucking, you know, broke new ground. But because you're looking at something else, you know. And in, ter- a- sorry, yeah, in terms of like matching, like let's say opposite theories have been, or like the theory has been proven to be 
right in one case and then the opposite of the same theory has been proven yeah or like an opposing theory what like conflating those two like if it came to an argument and you know the guy who's carried out this has found one thing and someone's carried out another that's found it the opposite like where do you breach that ground there how does it come to one thing understand it one thing i was reading recently i was um for some reason my youtube feed was just bombarded with like tiktok videos of fat phobia you know, like these like crazy people yeah. on TikTok ranting and raving about fat phobia. One person was like, oh, if you've an eating disorder, you're fat phobic. <laughs> okay, yikes. But I was like, well, yeah, what, what is fat phobia all about? Like, does that actually impact like your, your likelihood of getting a job? And what I found this article that um, had looked at 30 plus studies on job discrimination and fat phobia. And they came up with two things that to me seem very different. So this article was saying, well, there's two things to keep in mind about fat phobia. The fatter you are, the poorer you are. But the poorer you are, the fatter you are. And the fatter you are, the more likely you are to not get higher up, like higher yeah. paid jobs. But the more higher paid you are, the more likely you are to be overweight. The more money you have, to, the more money you'll be able to spend on, on food. But the less money you have... <laughs> <laughs> you know I think I mean? they wrote that trying to confuse you. Yeah, no, I'm I'm explaining it wrong. They wrote it lovely, but uh, <laughs> I'm explaining it wrong. But no, but even even if you're like uh, not taking exact quotes, the fact that they say such different things, yeah, conflicting yeah. things. Yeah, mm. there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of disagreement sometimes, but the disagreement is good because um, who was it? There was some scientist that said it. Was it Einstein or was it you know, was it somebody Carl Sagan maybe? Some some scientist said, I really hope. Um, in a hundred years' time, my feel like my field is still being questioned. I, I I hope it doesn't get to a point where there's no more progress being yeah. made, because at that point, it's very unlikely that you've figured it out. It's just that you've locked yourself into like a cage of uh, an echo chamber. I know you guys are saying that a lot. Yeah, well, well, that whole like the whole idea of the scientific method is just pure skepticism. So mm-hmm. I mean, with psychology, it doesn't seem like they can get to the case unless like that some neuroscientific discovery can be made that solves everything. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it'll be get, that we'll get to that point anytime soon anyways. There's over a dozen different explanations for schizophrenia. There's over a dozen different explanations for Alzheimer's. There's tons of explanations for epilepsy. Yeah. You know, mm. nothing's really uh, that certain. It's getting to a point where, because obviously psychology is very young as a science it sort of it started in the 1800s just looking at reaction times you know that's mm-hmm. great and all that but like what's that going to solve yeah <laughs> where's that going <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean and then we had like that freud period that we uh, yeah, wish we could erase um but like really psychology is only let's say 70 years old 80 years old it's a, it's a young when you think about how long like geometry and astronomy yeah. and yeah. engineering's been around like you guys have been around for like thousands of years like physiotherapy <laughs> like the human body's been explored since like what who knows? Yeah, yeah, and I think um, that might actually be a fairly perfect thing to to sum up the episode in terms of yeah. we've like we've come full circle <laughs> without barely scratching the surface. So I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, it is a nice way to finish up the episode. I think. I suppose so. I don't think there's anything more to. Yeah, is is there anything you'd like to shout out yourself on? Um, go look at the uh, the movie Millennium podcast for yeah. more of my voice. And for more discussions, the music behind it as well. Yeah, 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 the free lo-fi beats off YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it it really—it's actually nice to have that. Like, we can't really obviously with the two of us, but it it suits the podcast really well. To be fair, I have to 
give you congratulations thanks very much yeah and thanks for having me yeah no of course like not to say that uh, the same people <laughs> not to say that we have any more listeners than yourself it might be the case that who cares you're bringing over who yeah cares? exactly it, it was nice for us to have the conversation because like we said like our field of study is in psychology mm. we have an interest in psychology you can we can listen to a certain amount of stuff but it's nice to be able to sit down with someone for an hour who, who knows more than ourselves and that was the whole idea of the podcast was yeah. to try and further our knowledge so yeah fair play for that yeah so that's perfect so um thanks for anyone that was Thank listening you. all right all right I think that's that. all right